1: What are the current recommendations for the management of adult kidney transplant recipients with regards to diabetes and cardiovascular disease? Joining us to discuss the treatment of transplant patients in diabetes is transplant dietitian at the University of California San Diego Medical Center in San Diego, California, Linda Rains Mahoney. Ms. Mahoney, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks very much. Let's talk about the scope of the problem. We know that about 50% of patients living with diabetes will require some sort of renal replacement therapy.
2: Although we have about 300,000 people with kidney disease, many of those will go on to have some kind of renal replacement therapy, which would be peritoneal dialysis or hemodialysis. They can either do that uh, in the home or they can do that in a center, or they may go on for transplantation. But of those patients who go on for transplantation, only 25% of that population will actually get a transplant. If you're a diabetic, we try to encourage um, renal transplant earlier because the annual mortality for diabetics is 10%.
1: Of the folks that require end-stage renal disease therapies, whether it's uh, hemo or peritoneal dialysis or transplantation, what percent of those already have diabetes? And then for those that don't have diabetes, what happens afterward?
2: percent of the patients who um, are diabetic will actually require uh, dialysis or some kind of renal replacement therapy. And after the transplant, even those who are not diabetic prior to the transplant are still at risk for developing diabetes, and about 25 percent of those, and it depends on which center you look at, the the numbers are anywhere from 21 to 40 percent of those folks develop diabetes, depends on their risk. And the risk is, um, you know, it may be the risk of race, you know, the ethnicity. If they're African-American, Hispanic, or a Pima Indian, their risk is higher. If their age is over 40, their risk is higher. If they have hypertension already, again, that increases the risk being sedentary, um, with obesity, if the males have, if, they're, if their BMI is 27, which actually means they're not even obese, they're overweight, they have six times greater risk of developing diabetes post-transplant. And then if you add um, dyslipidemia, so their cholesterol or triglycerides are elevated, if they have a family history of diabetes, if um, for um, females, if they have macrosomia, that is children that are um, born weighing greater than nine if they have any kind of cardiovascular issues prior to transplant, or if they have um, hepatitis C. Those all increase the risk for developing diabetes after the transplant.
1: Yeah, and that laundry list includes many of the typical risk factors that we talk about for people that don't get a transplant. And I'm sure being on uh, anti-rejection meds and and steroids doesn't help either. Well, let's talk about the dietary intervention. Um, You know, once someone has a transplant, they're obviously at a, at a tremendous risk for both heart disease and diabetes if they don't have it already. What, what are some of the things that you're doing with your dietary team?
2: In the first um, 90 days after the transplant, we try to encourage uh, a high-protein diet, which even though I say high-protein, it's probably comparable to what Americans are eating today, about 1.5 grams per kilogram of body weight. Um, We're also encouraging them to increase the phosphorus and magnesium because two of the immunosuppressants, the Prograf and the prednisone, actually uh, deplete those two minerals. And we're, of course, encouraging heart healthy because of the high cardiovascular risk. And along with that, we're asking them to uh, do a controlled carbohydrate or a consistent carbohydrate diet, very similar to any um, diabetic patient would be encouraged. In the long term, after 90 days, we try to moderate the protein. So we try to get it down to about one gram per kilogram. That we also encourage the high phosphorus and the high magnesium along with the diabetic or heart-healthy diet and carbohydrate control.
1: Well, why don't we um, just, can you explain a little bit more what a consistent carbohydrate diet is? Because I think many of our listeners don't know, and, you know, heart-healthy is kind of a general term. Can you can you give a little more details there?
2: Sure. As far as uh, carbohydrate-controlled, we, we know that the preferred source of energy is carbohydrate. But what we want to do is... Take the, refra- the refined grains, and we want to add back in the, the seeds and the skins, the fiber, so that that helps to um, moderate the glycemic index of the foods. Um, we try to um, make sure that they don't have a lot of extra added um, sugars, the sweets, the candy, the cakes, the pies. And we try to have them have fresh fruits rather than fruit juice. We want to make sure that they are as um, as conscious about the amount of carbohydrate that they're taking in at each meal and try to moderate it so that we divide it pretty evenly throughout the day. Rather than having um, a, a donut at breakfast and nothing at lunch and then a huge meal at, at night, we try to even out the carbohydrate so that they'll have more um evenly balanced meals.
1: So the consistent carbohydrate is uh, complex carbohydrates as best you can and having the same amount of carbohydrates with every meal. Hey, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with Linda Rains mahoney We're discussing recommended guidelines for the management of the renal transplantation patients. Well, Linda, I know that you got to work with all these... Um, doctors. How do you work with these physicians in terms of managing medications that may affect the patient with diabetes and heart disease after their transplantation?
2: The docs that I work with are great. They rely on my expertise in managing the patients as far as the insulin management, as far as the the diet. Um, they, they actually refer to me so many times and, and I don't feel like they. I I think that they they're wonderful to work with, but they really do leave the diabetes management to me. And certainly under their direction, um, I don't think I've ever had any of the docs say, um, "Gee, I don't think we should do that." So uh, it makes me feel like I have um, a real integral part of the team.
1: Well, what what actually um, when you say diabetes management and the insulin. Be more specific. What What are you actually doing? You're testing their blood sugars, you're adjusting the insulin, things like that?
2: Yes, when we um, send our, our patients home from the hospital, uh, we essentially treat them as if they were new diabetics. We don't know whether they're, they're going to be hyperglycemic, but they have two diabetogenic medications. The prograf will make the pancreas actually make less insulin and the prednisone will make them insulin resistant. So um, we have, and during those first 90 days, the docs are adjusting the medications based on levels that we get on the labs twice a week. So um, when they adjust the prednisone down or up, I know that I'm going to have to manage the insulin a little bit differently. So we we really use um a humolog, which is the rapid-acting insulin at first, and then if if we're using too much of that and I'm not getting glycemic. Control, then uh, we'll add a basal insulin. Um, usually we use Lantus, but um, we don't usually give it at night. We usually um, dose that in the morning because it, it even though it's a 24 hour peakless insulin, it kind of peters out an hour or so before it's supposed to, and it really doesn't get up and running for about an hour or so. We generally dose it in the morning, and it works out much better that way.
1: Well, let me just jump in there and say, that, you know, obviously, Umalog, there's also uh, Novalog and and That's just the one you use, but they're fairly similar. And then Lantus or Levemir. It's interesting that you give it in the morning, but the other thing that I agree with is that, um, you know, when you give prednisone, it kind of put, peters out towards the end of the day and you may not need as much fast acting so it it probably balances pretty good do they use any oral agents uh, in these patients or it seems like from what you've just said they go straight to uh, insulin
2: we start them off with insulin because it's easiest to manage with the um, we really can't use metformin because of the creatinine issues yes we can't use the TZDs because the a problem with um, the heart so so many times that causes fluid overload, and these folks are already fluid overloaded when their kidneys are just beginning to get up and running. So we don't, um, when we dose the patients with insulin, usually the first month is when the prednisone is the highest, and after that first month, we'll start to titrate it downward so that we're going to get a basal on our prednisones of about 0.1 milligram per kilogram of their body weight. When they start to titrate the prednisone down, then I can look at seeing whether I can transition them, and usually I'll transition them to uh, a I uh, use glipizide most of the
1: time. Yeah, that's interesting. Now I know why our referrals are going down, because a dietitian has taken away our business. <laughs> Th- thanks a lot, Linda. Oh, no. Uh,
2: no, no, no. Uh, we would love Yes, absolutely. You
1: know. I'm calling the chief of medicine after this uh, call. <laughs> hey, um, you know what I think what you've said is a really good lesson for most of, most of our uh, listeners is that when someone goes on prednisone, whether it's for uh, sinus infection or anything else, uh, treating the postprandial insulin with a fast-acting analog is the first step. And if you look at the, the board questions on the uh, recertification exams, that, that's, that's the answer. When someone goes on prednisone, it's fast-acting insulin before meals. Well, let's, let's finish up talking about cardiovascular disease. We know that over half of these renal transplant patients end up dying of cardiovascular disease. And that's the most common de- cause of death for, for Americans in general. What what can we recommend to our nephrologists and other healthcare professionals managing these patients over the long term, not just the post-90 days after transplant?
2: We, we want them to keep a very close eye on their hemoglobin A1Cs because even though if we can transition them to an oral agent or maybe we can have them control their um, post-transplant diabetes with diet and exercise alone, they are at much, much greater risk in the next two years of developing um, type 2 diabetes or new-onset diabetes after transplant. So we really want them to take a close look at the A1Cs and watch trends. We also need them to take a look at their lipid profiles and, you know, understanding that if they manage the cholesterol and the LDL, they're going to be at a lower risk for the cardiovascular complications. We also want them to look at their weight management. Most of the folks after transplant, um, in many cases, can gain a, a, a significant amount of weight. And as you know, um, obesity is is a, a risk factor for developing diabetes. So we want them to really make sure that their weight is, is uh, where it should be. I always tell my My transplant patients, that skinny rats keep their kidneys longer. That's what the research says. And and we want to make sure that they don't gain that extra weight because it's such a risk. Oh, yes. Also, we want them to look at their uh, 25-hydroxyvitamin D uh, levels just because we want them to be where they should be.
1: Well, that sounds like the usual preventative measures. I'd like to thank our guest, transplant dietitian and budding endocrinologist and diabetologist <laughs> at the University of California San Diego Medical Center in San Diego, California, Linda Raines Mahoney. Ms. Mahoney, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse.
2: Thank you, Dr. Edelman. It was a pleasure being here.
0: Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash D-I-A. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan, who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years.
3: Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes, whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it?
0: Yes, Jamie, go ahead.
3: GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does?
0: What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety?
3: Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function.
1: Well,
2: isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes?
3: Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.